Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. I want to encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, to open them up to the letter of Paul to the Colossians, the book of Colossians in your Bibles, or you can open up your Bible app and uh, find today's event in there as well. And so we are going to continue in our study of the book of Colossians. And if you remember, our, our, our over or our mission here at church is to know God and to make Him known, and we're doing that by studying Colossians and remembering that we are all part of the kingdom of the sun, that we as believers have been called out of darkness and into God's kingdom, the kingdom of the sun. And now we are beginning to see exactly what that means. So if you have your Bibles or or your Bible app, open up to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And uh, so here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we begin to see Not just that we are in the kingdom of the Son, but who our King, the Son, is. Because every kingdom has a king, and we've already been told that the kingdom belongs to the Son. So who is this King? What does He look like? What are His qualities? What are His special features that we should be celebrating? And um, some, some things to understand about what the Colossian church was struggling with, and also this passage, what it is. This, this passage, verses 15 through 20, it's a hymn or a poem. In some of your Bible translations, you might look and, and see that it is offset from the rest of the type. It's, a, it's indented, typically, uh, formatted a little differently. And it's because it is a poem or a hymn. And it was either something that was in the early church before Paul wrote this letter, or it was something that Paul wrote specific, specifically for this occasion. Specifically? Um, specifically for this occasion. But it, it's still, it's a poem or a hymn. There's rhythm. There's alliteration. You guys know what alliteration is? In the, in the Greek, the original language, there's alliteration. There's words that start with the same sounds or letters over and over again. And there's also repetition in the original language. And so we, we see that, that this is, is definitely meant to be used, not just a one-time teaching tool, but as potentially a song to be sung in the early church to remind them who their king is. Now, this was likely written sometime in A.D. 60 to 62, if the Apostle Paul wrote it original for this letter, or if it was a hymn from the the church from previous, then it was before A.D. 60 to 62. Now, some of us have uh, watched uh, different documentaries, or, you know, we watched the Da Vinci Code, you know, that Jesus... His early followers never saw him as God or or didn't understand him to be deity is what certain atheists or those who try to debunk Christianity might claim. But we can see that within 30 years of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul is writing a hymn declaring his deity, describing who he is. And this is really the the issue that he's trying to, to address in the Colossian church. Earlier in the chapter, he he celebrates that they know the gospel and the gospel is bearing fruit and and growing in their lives. 
So clearly they understand the gospel, the fact that Jesus came and lived and died for the sake of their sins and rose again on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. They received Jesus as their king. They understood the gospel. But what we see here is that they were struggling with understanding the Christ of the gospel. Now you might say, what's the distinction? Well, the thing is, is they understood the story of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that someone else died for their sins and rose again on the third day that they might be saved. But what they were misunderstanding was who that someone was. They were making Jesus to look like themselves far too much, or they were denying his humanity. And, and that's kind of what these false teachers were, were beginning to teach in the church of Colossae, and, and what Paul is trying to teach against in giving them this hymn. So these false teachers, they were trying to teach that Jesus was maybe like a lesser God. You know, you have the God of the creation, and then Jesus is like a somewhere down the line. And so he's God, but not all the way God. He's like, you know, sort of God and kind of God. Some of the, them were teaching, the false teachers were also teaching that Jesus was a created being. And why is this important? Well, if Jesus were created, he would not be fully God. He would be some sort of lesser being than the one true God. And, and so they were developing this system of believing the, the man who lived and died on the cross and rose again on the third day. They understood the gospel, but they were making him a created being, a lesser being than, than uh, a God or a deity at all. They, they were teaching uh, because Colossae was like a hotbed of an angel cult. They were teaching that Jesus was just one in a series of angelic beings. So there was like the one true God, and then there was another angel or, or angelic being under him, and then another one under them, and then on down the line. And Jesus was somewhere down here, a very low-level angelic being. And you had to know Jesus and, and his secret words and secret ways to know the next angel up, to know his secret words and secret ways to know the next angel up. And eventually, if you got good enough and spiritual enough, you could work your way up through serving different angelic beings to get to the one true God. So the Apostle Paul is writing this hymn to confront that. There were people who taught that he was different from the one true God, that, that the, there's the, the God of creation and then there's Jesus, who's a, a completely separate God. Anybody ever heard that kind of a notion, that there's the God of the Old Testament and then the God of the New? Like there's some sort of distinction between the two? And you must understand that that is not the case, that the very same God we see represented as one and three in the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament represented in Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father. One God all throughout. And Paul is writing this hymn to confront those issues. And then ultimately we're going to get to the end of this hymn, which addresses the, the fact that some of the, the religious teachers uh, were not trying to make Jesus superhuman, but what they were trying to do was deny his humanity and make him God who pretended to be human and pretended to die for our sins. So he was non-corporeal. He had no body. He just appeared to have a body. And so the Apostle Paul in this hymn is eventually going to address that as well. So let's look in these verses that celebrate and describe the king who rules over the kingdom that we have been transferred into, according to the passages just before this. So verse 15 begins this way. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this, if we read it and we think about singing this, and man, this is, this is a song. It's not just like, oh God, you're so good, we're so not. You know, but it's, this is just an amazing song. It's rich and it's deep and it's so full of theological truth. And the first truth that it teaches us is that Jesus is the eternal king. He has always been king and he always will be. And, and so we begin with verse 15 that starts giving us the details of how this works out. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so we might go, okay, so what does this mean? What does it mean he is the image of the invisible God? So is he just like a picture? Just a, a representation? Is he just like a, a, a statue that's, that's kind of... He's there, but not. No, what, what Paul is saying in this word image, and it's, it's what Scripture says all throughout the New Testament, is that Jesus is all there is to God. All there is is represented in Christ Jesus, in his character, in his person. He is the exact representation of the Father. We have other, other verses. John 1.18, it says this, No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. John begins to use interchangeably the word God and Father, and yet says that Jesus is both at the side of the Father and is God himself. And so we see the Trinity realized here. God, Father, Son, all together. And Christ, the the Son, is the fullness of the revelation of the Father. That if you want to know Father God, you want to know God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, to whom do you look? The Son. The Son completely reveals the fullness of the Father because He and the Father are one. Now, wait a minute. Are they one or are they two? Yes. They are one. God, in essence, two in persons. They are one in being, two in expression. And so we see that Jesus is the exact picture of the Father. John 14, 9, Jesus says to him, who's the him? Well, it's his disciples, Thomas. Uh, Have I been among you all this time? Excuse me, it was Philip. Uh, Have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen somebody who looks a little bit like the Father. No. He says, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, Jesus is saying of himself, I am the perfect, full revelation of the Father to you. You want to know the Father? Where do you look? To Jesus, the Son, who reveals 
him in a manner that we can understand and begin to at least wrap our head around. A little bit later, the writer of Hebrews says this, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. In other words, Jesus in the flesh, he is not some sort of lesser God. He is not some sort of dim reflection of the one true God, but he is the fullness of the glory of the Father and the full expression of the nature of the one true God. And so we, we, we will struggle to wrap our heads around this. But what we must understand is if you ever take Jesus and bring him down a notch and make him less than, if you say, well, he's sort of like the father, but, you know, he has to do this or he's following the father's rules or, or he's a submissive God or he's a secondary God. That is not true. Jesus is God. The father is God. And Jesus reveals God to us as the Son. And so you might sit there and go, I don't get this. That's okay. Christians have been arguing about how this works out and how to explain it and how to understand it for literally hundreds of years. But it doesn't mean that we can't get enough of this to be able to say with confidence that Jesus, our King... He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. That God that you've been looking for, the God you've been searching for, the God you know is behind everything. When you want to see him, you look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. It's interesting that that Paul used this phrase, invisible God. He uses it specifically to counter some of the false teachings that were going on in his day. There, there was that, that, remember I told you they thought that Jesus was just like one on a level uh, of, of angelic or supernatural beings to get to the one true God, the invisible God, the one that underlies everything, who's never really revealed himself to mankind. In fact, they believed that the God of the Old Testament was an even lesser God than Jesus because he created physicality and physical things are evil. And so the one true God, the invisible God, could never create evil, evil flesh. Uh, but, but, but Paul is saying, not only do I know the invisible God, not only do I talk with him, not only do I know what he looks like and who he is, but Jesus is his fullness right here before us. Now it says he is the firstborn over all creation. Some of us might, might struggle with that a little bit. The firstborn over all creation. And go, so that means Jesus was born first. So Jesus is just a man, right? He's just, he's just flesh. He's just some sort of offspring or creation of the Father. And that's a misunderstanding of the term firstborn. What does firstborn mean? Well, he's not talking about firstborn in chronology or birthing order. But rather, the idea of firstborn in the Old Testament and and. That, that comes into the New Testament is the one with the authority and the prominence. The one who has uh, all of the rights and privileges of the Father vested in them for all eternity. And so he is the firstborn over all creation. In other words, he is in charge over all creation, given authority over creation by the Father. 
The same as the oldest son would be the one who receives both the lion's share and control over the inheritance of a father to his children. Jesus is given the authority over all of creation by the Father. He is a distinct person and yet one with the Father. Now, we, we can look at other scriptures to help us understand this. Uh, John five eighteen says this. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, speaking of Jesus, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. So we understand that as Jesus is teaching that God is his father, people don't hear it and say he's the first physical child of God, but they hear it and understand that Jesus is making the claim that he is God. He is equal to the father. He is the firstborn over all creation, given authority by the Father. And we get the picture of what that means. Psalm 89, 27. This is God speaking of a descendant of David. And God in this psalm says this, I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings on the earth. So clearly firstborn does not mean the first to be birthed, but instead firstborn means the one given all the authority. So when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he's saying, Jesus, the image of the one true and invisible God, has been given authority over all of creation. All of creation. And then he's going to go on and describe what that looks like. So Jesus is the eternal king who rules over all of creation. Now, we can imagine... What is it that exists outside of creation? Nothing. We have God, who has, is self-existent and is, is, is in uh, one God in three persons. And then we have those things that he's created, and that's everything else. And so if Jesus is ruler over all creation, what does Jesus rule? Everything. Everything that exists. Everything that we know to exist, Jesus rules over And so that is what Paul begins to explain to us in verse 16. Not only does he tell us that he rules over creation, but he tells us this, for everything was created by him. Everything was created by him. This is not the first time we see this in scripture. In the gospel of John, John had written, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing that was created, excuse me, not one thing was created that has been created. In other words, Jesus created everything. Everything was created by him. And how we would explain this? Well, what we understand is that when we're talking about the relationship of the Trinity, that the Father is the one who ordains and determines and causes creation, and the Son is the one who is the agent of creation. It's, this is a terrible analogy, Uh, do not hold me to it because it's really heretical, but maybe it will help you understand what I'm talking about. It is like, but it is not the same as completely. It is like a parent giving a child $20 to go buy milk. The parent is the one who determined it to be, who made provision for it to be, but the child is the one who takes the $20 and goes and buys the milk and brings it home. Once again, Don't read too much into that. 
but hopefully that helps you to understand a little bit what we're talking about here. The Father determined and made provision. The Son is the agent of creation. And so, like a child going and buying milk, but much, much more, (laughs) we end up understanding that everything is created by Jesus. Now, what does this speak? Well, it means he's not a created being, right? If he created everything, then he is not created by anything. He is self-existent. He has always been. What we understand is he is not subject to any of the, the standards or rules that we would put on him as humans. He is the creator. He is the one who sets the standards. He is the one who rules and reigns. And then, then Paul begins to explain the everything that was created by Jesus. We say everything was created by him. And so where in all of everything are we talking about? What are we talking about? Well, everything. And in the heavens, on the earth. Some of our translations, in my translation, the CSB, it just says in heaven. But it's actually plural there. And, and the Jewish culture had an understanding of three heavens. And, and what are the three heavens, you might ask? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. Let me tell you, or let me try and explain it to you. The first heaven is the sky, where birds fly, right? Airplanes fly. Chinese balloons fly. Um, sorry, you know, yeah, how can you miss that, right? That's, that's the first heaven. The second heaven is outer space. Outer space. Once you get out, the stars, the, the, the moon, the, the, the planets, outer space. And then the third heaven is the abode of God. It is the supernatural, where, where supernatural beings and God himself reside. Now, we all know that God is not limited to any one place, but it's, it helps us to understand the thinking of there is a place or a, an experience in which one will see God in a unique way, and that would be the third heaven. The Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians talks about being caught up into the third heaven, having a vision in which he goes into the very throne room of God. And says, I went to the third heaven. I didn't go to where the birds are. I didn't go out to the stars. I went to where God lives. And I saw him face to face. And so we say that uh, here, that we, we see that everything in the heavens, one, two, and three. Everything in the heavens and on earth. So everything in heaven, that, uh, in the heaven we think of like Christian heaven, right? That, that is not God himself was created by God. Everything in outer space was created by God, Jesus. And everything that's here on the earth, everything that we see with the birds flying and the balloons flying, it's all under the rule of Jesus as creator. And then it also says this, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now we read that and maybe we think of, okay, so we got thrones, so you know, that's Great Britain. And then dominions, well... There's like King's Dominion. That's in Virginia. That's a amusement park. God made that. And then, um, yeah, so no, we're not talking about that. We need to understand when Paul is talking about authorities and rulers and dominions and thrones, he's actually addressing a very specific false teaching that the Colossian church was struggling with. You see that they were teaching, like I mentioned before, that there was this, this hierarchy of, of angelic beings. And, and Jesus was just like the entry level. And and you had to know special things about Jesus. And you had to know secret words and passwords. And you had to, to practice rituals and deny your flesh in certain ways in order to 
know the next God or the next angelic being up. And there was, it's genuinely understood in the culture of the day that even, even amongst the Jewish uh, thoughts in, in the first century, it would have been seeing that there are different levels of angelic beings, yes, but Jesus created even those. He is not the beginning of your spiritual understanding and journey. He is the one who created it all. He is the one who has authority over every supernatural being. Whether authorities or rulers or dominions or thrones, Jesus is the invisible God who created all of them. Now, what does this tell us? Well, a couple of things. It does affirm that there are supernatural beings. There are angelic beings under the authority of God who do his bidding. Scripture tells us this in other places as well. Now, we don't want to like fall off the cliff and begin to practice some crazy angelology, which is what happened in, in the Colossian church. They got so wrapped up in doctrines about angels that they neglected the truth about Jesus. But we must understand that the, there are spiritual beings outside of God. There are supernatural beings. They, they do serve a role in God's great plan. And there are both those that are on God's side and standing in rebellion against God. And we must never forget that. But the thing we must remember above and beyond that is that Jesus is in charge over all of them. And not only is he in charge given some sort of authority, he actually made them for his own purposes. And so we can be confident that when we face spiritual warfare or concerns, we are not in some place that that is outside of the control of our Savior, but instead we are firmly within His creation and within His kingdom. Paul goes on to say this, Everything was created by Him, all of these things, whether it's in the heavens or here on the earth, all things have been created through Him and for Him. So not only is Jesus the creator, the agent of creation for all things, the one who took the will and the the authority of the Father and then expressed it in creating all that is, but it says all of it was created through him by his power, by, by his authority as well, and then for him. He is the one who is the overseer of creation. He is the one who is the the word we would use if we were going to be like really, really fancy. He is the telos. He is the goal of creation. It was made for his purposes. It finds its beginning and its end in Jesus alone. Now you may say, oh, beginning and end. That sounds familiar. It sounds like something maybe I've heard in other passages, and it is. Romans 11.36 says this, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In other words, Jesus is the one that, that everything is created from, through, and for. And not only that, when we, we see in, in verse 17, sorry, I got, I got so excited, I kind of lost my own track. But, but Jesus is, is the one who everything is, is created 
2 through and 4. And then it goes on and, and it says this in verse 17. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. So we know that Jesus, by the last verse, he is the goal. He is the end of creation. But then it says he's also before all things. He is the beginning of all creation. Isaiah 41.4. Who has performed and done this thing, calling the generations from the beginning? I am the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. So we see the God of the Old Testament says, I'm the beginning and the end. Revelation 1.8, we see Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. In Revelation 22.13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. Paul says to us that Jesus, he has created all things they're created through him and for him, and he is before all things. He is the, the one who starts it all off, and he is the one that all of it is pointing to at the end. When you want to know well, what's up, who's got a plan, it, it all starts and ends in Jesus. And so this king that we serve, this kingdom that we're in, is not one where we should be confused and wondering who's in charge and, and, and what's going on. Jesus knows and Jesus is in control and Jesus is in charge. And we see that he, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And not only is he the one who began everything and he is the end result of everything when the days come to a close, but it also says, by him all things hold together. By him all things hold together. I am by no means a physicist. In fact, I did physics in high school. The, what I did, I built a bridge out of popsicle sticks. That was physics in high school, right? I took biology in college, and I only had to take one science course because I was a Bible major. And so, um, but, but, but I'm not stupid when it comes to science. And I can read, I was reading uh, Department of Energy. I, w- I was reading uh, on, on the uh, Large Hadron Collider page and stuff. And, and trying to understand what this verse might mean when compared with science. It says that Jesus holds all things together. Now that sounds like some of the, the, uh, the, the things that we were taught in Sunday school, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. Yeah, and we're like... Okay, well, that's, that's childish. We, we know that we, we're not going to look in the telescope and see God's hands holding the world, right? We know that. So, so why would we genuinely believe that Jesus is holding the world together or holding all things together? Well, let me tell you why that is so much more than just a spiritual thing, but it's actually scientific. Uh, if you understand anything about science, you understand that your body, you can look at your, it's made up of what? cells, right? And your cells, they're made up of, of, of the components of cells. You've got actually organelles inside your cells, little bits of pieces. So it's like every cell has got a liver and a kidney and, you know, it's similar to that. F- things that function inside each cell that have their own jobs. And so you, you dig down a little deeper and you start looking at the parts of the cell and inside the parts of the cell, you end up going and finding chemicals and compounds that, that, that make up those parts. Uh, that periodic table of elements that you, you ignored in chemistry in high school. 
That's what makes up everything in, in molecules, in, in compounds. And then, then you break it down even further and you find the atoms, the, the single components of single things that, that are combined together to make molecules. Well, well atoms, <clears throat> atoms they're, they're not the end of the journey. You, you dig into the inside of an atom, and if you remember chemistry at all, you, you studied it all in high school, or, or you're about to get to it in high school. If you look at chemistry, you, you know that, that an atom, a single atom of a single element, is made up of even smaller components. You've got, you've got protons and neutrons in the nucleus, and, nucleus, and you've got electrons that, that uh, they, they, uh, orbit around the nucleus of an atom. Did you know that, that technically you're not even solid? You're, it's just this weird thing that your rear end and the chair are interacting right now and, and kind of like existing together. It's weird when you begin to understand some of this stuff and start talking physics. And, and, and so, so you, you have a nucleus and inside the nucleus you've got protons and neutrons. And, and so you can actually dig even further into those. And you find... You find inside protons, you find something called a quark. And, and if you are familiar with Star Trek, it's not the guy who owns the bar. It is instead, it's a, it's a small component and quarks make up protons that together with neutrons make up the nucleus of an atom that together with electrons make up the whole atom. But you, you get it, so we dig in even deeper. And so there, there are components to quarks. And, and, and that quarks have different assignments and they have, they're up and down and left and right and they have color. And not like you match your quarks with your outfit, but, but color is a way to describe how they interact. And, and technically the things that make up all of these should not hold together. There's no reason for them to hold together. In fact, when scientists begin to describe why two quarks hold together in order to combine with a third quark to make a proton, do you know what they say holds quarks together? They call it the strong force. That's how... So what is it that makes two quarks stay together? The strong force. What is the strong force? The thing that makes two quarks stay together. Right? And, and so, so they actually begin to give it names, uh, the, the, that, that strong force. The, they try and give it a, an, an expression, a physical expression. Start talking about things like gluons. And we're not talking about nails, right? It's just, it's just a concept that, that scientists grab onto to try and understand what is it that holds us together. We start talking about things that we don't even have evidence for other than there's something there that's doing something, and so we give it a name. Do you guys know any of you who, who enjoy sci-fi, maybe dark matter or antimatter? That, that we don't even know for sure that it exists, except it's the only way we can explain the fact that things in our world hold together is that maybe there's some other side to it that's opposite and helps hold things together. And we work really, really hard to try and understand why even the smallest components of what make us who we are, why they even work. Now, if you have a degree in this and you think I'm wrong, talk to me afterwards. I want to know. I want to understand better. But this is my best understanding with some internet sleuthing. Is that we don't know what holds us together. We don't, we don't know what, what makes an atom stay together. We don't know why stuff doesn't just fly apart. We don't understand it. 
until we go to Scripture. And it literally says that by Him all things hold together. Jesus is the glue on. (laughs) It's not some Star Trek, you know, bad guy of the week. But Jesus is the one who holds things together. Jesus is the one who makes quarks stay together. He is the strong force that makes it possible for... A, a, a proton to, to be with a neutron, to be the nucleus, to, to have electrons, to make a, an atom, to join together to make molecules, to join together to make compounds, to join together to make our organelles, and the things that make them up to join together to make our cells that join together to make up our organs that join together to make us. All of this is because Jesus is actively holding it together. I mean, we should just be like, this is our king. This is our ruler. It is not that just we exist and he, he wants us to worship him. We exist because he wills it to be so. We exist because he is actively holding us together. You, you belong to him so intimately and real. Like, like, because he's holding you together, you exist. And, and so I could say the same thing, but reorder the words like a dozen times. And it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is holding all of creation together. Hebrews 1.3 says this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Sustaining all things by his powerful world. Powerful, powerful word. <laughs> Tongue twister. That Jesus is the one who makes everything to exist. And so we sit back today and say with confidence, according to what Scripture teaches us, that Jesus is the eternal King who rules over all of creation as the Creator, as the Source, as the Telos or the goal of creation, and finally, as the Sustainer. Our very existence depends upon the work of the king in our lives as his creation. And so, as we see who Jesus is today, and this is just the first half of the hymn, and some of you guys are already looking at your watch and going, is he going to keep going? I'm saving the second half for next week, so you've got to come back. You've got to see the rest of it. Because Jesus, this isn't the only thing that Jesus rules over. This isn't it, folks. There's more, but wait, there's more. But today I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to wrestle with the fact that Jesus, whether you believe on him as your savior or not, Jesus is the eternal king who rules over all of creation as creator, its source, its goal, and its sustainer. You should be inspired to at least consider him. As your Lord and Savior. If you already declare that Jesus is your Christ. Your Lord and Savior. This should inspire you. That every breath you take. Has both found its source. Its end. And its sustaining. In the hand of God upon you. There is never a moment. Where your king is not intimately involved in your life. Your very existence depends. On his active presence. Stop lamenting and saying, where are you, God? Is your heart beating? He's right here. Are are you here? He's here. 
I think, therefore, he is, to use a little bit of Descartes. And so, when we're talking about King Jesus, I want you to think about your view of him this morning. Is your view of Jesus completely off base? Are you making Jesus less than what he is? Are you worshiping him as some sort of false god created in your own image? A a god that you can control. A God who is there to to give you what you want, to make you happy. Now, he does delight in doing many of those things, giving us the things we desire, bringing us joy. But that's not who he is by his nature. That's not what he exists for. He is the king who has created and has a plan and a purpose in it. Is, Is your picture of him incomplete? Are you looking at him and, and saying, yeah, I believe this little bit, but I don't believe that bit. Well, it's time to believe everything that Scripture says about your Jesus. Is your view of Jesus something that you ignore? Like, oh, he's creator, he's sustainer, and then we'll go out of the church later today and live like none of it's true. And, and, and some of us, we, we can do that, can't we? We can live like we're atheists from the time church ends on Sunday till we see each other again the next Sunday morning. We need to live as though we really believe that Jesus is king. Finally, is your view integral to your life? And this is where we want you to be. This is where we should be as believers, that we know who Jesus is, that we take what Scripture says about him at face value And then we make it a critical part of our life. How does the fact that that Jesus created you, sustains you, makes you, is the end goal of your life, how should that change how you behave? And that's a question for you to ask yourself. What what does that really mean for me? Scripture's going to tell us more as we move along. But that's where we're going to land today is, what's your view of Jesus And does it really matter? Is it an improper view of Jesus that you need to allow Scripture to correct? Is it an incomplete view of Jesus that you need to allow Scripture to complete? Is it a view that you know all the right things, but you're ignoring Him? Or is it that you take what you know about your Savior Jesus and you make it a critical part of your everyday life? Next week, we'll finish out this picture of who our King is and realize and understand that Jesus is the eternal King who rules over his church. And that's even more exciting as we understand what he's done for us to bring us into his body, this fellowship, and bring us into right relationship with himself and the Father through what he did on the cross. So join me, if you will, for a word of prayer. And then we'll close with a great old hymn, kind of reworked as a worship song. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. He is our creator and our king and our sustainer. And so today we we ask that you would help us to have a right view of him. And that our right view of him would not just be intellectual, but that it would be integral to our lives as believers. That when we live and move, we would understand our very being is in him. Our very existence finds its source and its completion in him that breathing right here right now heart beating right here and right now is a gift from you lord jesus as you hold us together and sustain us 
And may this knowledge affect our everyday life. No longer lamenting that you're distant and we struggle to know you, but understanding that every, every bit of this life and this world is a gift and you are constantly present in it. We pray for new life in all of us. And we still, Lord Jesus, we reiterate our commitment to linger, to listen for your voice, to seek to know you, and to allow you to bring us back to newness of life and fullness of life as we worship and seek revival. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus, this morning. Just take a moment and linger, and you pray, and you talk to your Savior.
encourage you, if you've got time to linger, then do. You need something to get to. Life's that way. But if God is speaking, do not walk away until he's done with you. If you're feeling his prompting, you're feeling his conviction, don't run away until it's over. May God bless you. May you see his face this week. May you hear his still small voice. May he bless you with the time to genuinely sit and listen.